be called the modern elder because they said I was as curious as I was wise. And to see that I was, you know, I wasn't looking for reverence as an elder, but I was looking for relevance. Welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization. Thanks for being part of Googleization Nation. I'm Ira Wolf. And I'm Jason Cochran. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We're the voice of the most important crucial conversations that are confronting business leaders and people today. And our goal is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow and explore the impact and convergence of business, technology, and people. This episode of Geek Skeezers and Googleization is sponsored by our partner, Y Institute, your personal and professional GPS for a meaningful life and purpose-filled career. You'll hear more about the Y Institute and the Y operating system a little bit later in the show. Today, we are honored and humbled to have the world-renowned modern elder, Chip Conley, joins us. As an older baby boomer, I guess I've chronologically earned the right to be an elder. But do I really qualify as a modern elder? We'll find out soon. But to reach this point, I had to live through my own midlife crisis, which seems to be a rite of passage into, I'm not sure what to call it, maybe elder life, which, you know, one time was a, a downer, but now maybe it's a positive. I'm wondering, like many of you, is midlife crisis really a thing? When does one become eligible? to have a midlife crisis opposed to just being stressed and burned out? Is the age for a midlife crisis getting later in life? Before we bring on Chip though, it's time for our weekly Perfect Labor Storm segment. On each episode, we focus on a disruptive, surprising, worrisome trend that we believe you should know about. So here's today's Perfect Labor Storm. Younger workers have initially fueled the great resignation and quiet quitting, but there's evidence that older workers are joining as well. The number of resignations among the, the group age 50 to 60 grew 34% in the first quarter of 2022 from a year ago. From some of the stories and that I'm hearing these days, that number is probably going up with the threats of a recession in the economy and the introduction to 2023. Many others have left the workforce in the middle of their careers to seek out better pay, work-life balance, or start their own business. The same Vox analysis found the 57% uptick in resignations from employees that had worked in their previous roles for 10 to 15 years. And according to a new working paper published by the National Bureau of Economic Research, which documents a crisis of midlife in rich countries, along with the decline in basic measures of life satisfaction, the researchers found middle-aged upticks in intense job strain, suicide, sleeping problems, alcohol dependence, extreme depression, among other things. And this is pretty much confirmed by Gallup's 2022 State of the Workplace report that just came out a few months ago. Stress among workers reached an all-time high. 44% are stressed out on the previous day. 
40% were worried on the previous day and 21% were angry on the previous day. Here's a scary statistic. We're all aware that Gallup has talked about the 70% of employees who are disengaged or unengaged. Uh, that means three out, of three out of 10 are engaged, but 49% of the, of the employees in the survey, and this is out of over 112,000 business units, 49% of employees are not thriving and not engaged. 16% of this latter group has health problems. And low engagement in the U.S. alone is costing us 7.8 trillion, that's trillion with a T, dollars, and accounts for 11% of our GDP. Yeah, Ira, uh, it's crazy uh, for a millennial like me to think that my generation, we aren't spring chickens anymore. Uh, the older millennials like me were at or rapidly approaching the 40s. And I can tell you that from my own experience and that of my friends in the Sage Group as well, we're contemplating a lot of the things you just mentioned. We're asking major questions about ourselves, about who we are, the work that we do, and where the world is headed. And for our own kids one day too. Um, but amidst all of the anxiety and worry with all the recent change, there's also so many reasons for optimism. And that's why I'm really stoked that we have Chip Conley with us today because he's the world's leading expert on how to turn the, the midlife years into a calling. Among Chip's many accomplishments, he's the CEO and the founder of Modern Elder Academy, which is the world's first midlife wisdom school. Uh, and this is where folks go to learn how to repurpose a lifetime of experience for the modern workplace. He's also a New York Times bestselling author, including his most recent book from a few years ago, Wisdom at Work. And he also joined the, at that time, tiny little tech startup, you may have heard of them, Airbnb, nearly a decade ago. And he served as their strategic advisor for hospitality and leadership until March of 2021. He was twice the age of the average Airbnb employee at that time, which earned him the title, the modern elder. And he was just as curious as he was wise. And as the internal mentor to Airbnb CEO, Brian Chesky, Chip got to see the value of intergenerational collaboration and what has now grown to be the most valuable hospitality company in the world. So buckle up, everybody, because today we are going to challenge everything you thought you knew about midlife and beyond. So without further ado, let's give a warm Googleization uh, nation welcome to the one and only Chip Conway. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you guys. Hey, welcome, Chip. Thank you. You heard the intro, um, and I'm going to go back. I mean, as the baby boomer, as the older baby boomer, I recall it seems like ages ago, I think I was uh, about the same age as Jason is now. And, you know, I went out and I started to contemplate what my next chapter was. Um, I don't know if you know this about me, but I was a dentist. I had a, a, a thriving, growing practice. I was in my young 40s. I went out and bought my little red sports car. Uh, I was playing lots of golf. I was looking at, bought a second home uh, at the beach, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Because uh, as I said in my TED talk, I loved everything about dentistry, but dentistry. And up to that point, I sort of identified with the job title, with the career. Uh, and, you know, everybody said, oh, you're just going through a midlife crisis. Everybody does it <laughs> and sort of dismisses it. 
whether I had the guts or the courage or the stupidity, um, just to, about two years later, I said, I'm done. I'm out of here. Sold my practice and started a new career. Um, but I'm not sure that's the path that a lot of people take. Yeah. I, well, first of all, I'm honored to be here with you, uh, both you and Jason, um, Ira. And yeah, you know, let's let's unpack what even midlife is as a starting point. So, um, and let me and let me give you a little bit of a little more of my background. So, I at age 26 started a boutique hotel company called Joie de Vivre, which means Joy of Life in French, <clears throat> based in San Francisco. We had 52 boutique hotels around California, um, each with its own name, and I loved it till I hated it. Uh, I ran that company for 24 years until I sold it. It's now a Hyatt brand. But the bottom line is <clears throat> what happened to me between 45 and 50, so a little bit older than uh, where you were, Ira, was I had my dark night of the soul. Uh, you could call it a midlife crisis, but I actually think the language for it's the midlife chrysalis, and I'll explain that in a moment. Um, but what, what happened was I, was I was bored, but also done with this career I'd created. I, it was a calling until it became a job. It was not even a career. It, it sort of like fell apart in that I loved it, but I was getting bored. <clears throat> I didn't like the reasons I started the business uh, for creativity and freedom were, were not apparent to me when I had 3,500 employees. We went through the Great Recession. I had a, a long-term relationship ending. I had a foster son who's an adult going to prison wrongfully. And I was running out of cash in the Great Recession because I was a hotelier. So I had a, I had a flatline experience um, where I died nine times in 90 minutes due to a, an inter, uh, allergic reaction to an antibiotic. And that was my divine intervention that said, okay, this isn't working. And I, it was hard to, because my identity for almost two dozen years was being this founder and CEO of a fast growing company that got a lot of attention. But I, but the, the, the NDE, the near-death experience, helped me to get to the other side. So I would have called that a midlife crisis. Um, and I didn't really know what to do with it because there weren't a lot of, there's a few books on midlife crisis, but not much. And so I had a, one of my best friends was a coach and she helped me through that time. But I now see it as a midlife chrysalis. And let me explain that for a moment. Because midlife, a midlife chrysalis basically says that midlife for the butterfly is the chrysalis. You have the caterpillar. And then you have the butterfly and the in-between stage is this liminal transitional stage that's rather dark and gooey, um, pretty solitary, but it's actually where the, the, the transformation happens. And so um, the U-curve of happiness social science research does show that the low point on average across cultures for life satisfaction is around 47 years old. So between 45 and 50, I was sort of on average there. But what I ended up finding out in my 50s was I loved it. And I was still in midlife for sure. And I loved it partly because I had the freedom to do some new things. And I had the opportunity to be to join a little tech startup, Airbnb, and be twice the age of the average employee, be called the modern elder because they said I was as curious as I was wise. And to see that I was, you know, I wasn't looking for reverence as an elder, but I was looking for relevance. And um, I think that's a, a key part of midlife as well, is how do you stay relevant? <clears throat> because when you actually start feeling invisible, which a lot of women as they age feel, or irrelevant, which a lot of men feel, um, your life shrinks. And um, 
So I would just sum up by saying uh, my 50s were amazing. I'm 62 now. Uh, and I would just say that um, midlife, some sociologists now say it runs from 35 to 75, uh, which is a very long period. Um, and I think that you could have a you could have a down stage at any time during that time, but it doesn't necessarily have to be you know a long drawn out you know march to death, which is how a lot of people see midlife crisis. If you can get through the other side of it, all you have to look forward to is um, unhappiness. And in fact, the U curve of happiness research shows that with each passing decade after age fifty, we get happier and happier till about the last two years before we pass away. Chip, that's absolutely fascinating. And the, the near-death experience in terms of how that shaped your life and kind of catapulted you into being passionate about this topic of, of discovering what midlife and beyond was going to look like. I'm curious from your perspective or any research you've come across, since all of us went through the experiment of COVID, have there been earlier generations now that are going through that bottom part of the U-curve? Is, is that is that starting to happen earlier for some people where they're starting to question these things now? Yeah, great question. Interestingly, so we're to, we'll talk about the Modern Elder Academy, but over 15% of the people who've come to a place called the Modern Elder Academy, a midlife wisdom school, are millennials. So we have a lot of younger people who, who come and join us. A, a couple things I think are true, and, I, and I'm a big social science geek, so um, I will tell you that we scour, and we are very close with uh a lot of famous academics who help support our program. Um, I think there's one thing that we should know. There's a, called the quarter life crisis. Um, it's around age 25. <clears throat> it's a time when often it's sort of in the emerging adulthood phase of somebody. Um, I wouldn't call that a uh, midlife crisis. I would say that what a person's going through at that time is they're having to learn autonomy in a new way. Often they, they're finished with college. They may be finished with graduate school. Um, there's some unique things that are happening during that stage. I think what's happening for a lot of millennials, uh, I actually think millennials will, as a, as a generation, will have less midlife crisis than past generations. My generation, I'm a boomer, partly because one of the things that comes up is like what Ira was saying is like, you wake up in your forties and you say, what, whose life is this? I am, I am reading from the script of my parents or my community, or my wife or husband. I'm not reading from my script. <clears throat> and people want to rewrite their script. And often they go from middle-essence, which is another way of say, describing midlife, to adolescence, and with the fast car and, and the affair and all of that. Um, we know about that form of midlife crisis. Kevin Spacey showed us that in American Beauty. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I think what is going on for a lot of younger people um, especially millennials, is there's the classic element of how do I want to script my life? So I think that's happening in, in people's 30s more than maybe in the past. So you could say, oh, well, the midlife crisis is happening earlier. That may be true in some cases. Um, what comes with a midlife crisis is often a shift of the operating system from your ego to your soul. And I'm not just coming up with this kind of language. This is coming, I'm, I'm quoting Carl Jung, the famous psychologist and Christian mystic uh, Richard Rohr, uh, who is actually a student at MEA. When he came to MEA a year ago as a student at age 78, having written 50 books. Um, and, he's a, and he's a big collaborator with us because um, we, are, we have two campuses opening up in, in New Mexico where he's based. 
So I actually think if part of what's happening for someone who's a millennial is that they're going through both the questions of, is this the career I want? Is this the life I want? And then some shift in an internal operating system uh, such that they're moving a little bit away from the ego-fed proposition to a more soul-fed proposition, which means uh, often focusing on something more than yourself, you know, that that probably could be an early stage midlife crisis. There's a woman who, uh, there's a, a TV series now called Fleischman is in Trouble. Um, and it's sort of popular. It's a very midlife kind of midlife crisis kind of TV series. And the, the woman who actually wrote this book and then the script uh, said she had her midlife crisis at 33. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think that's possible. A lot of the headlines, and as I mentioned, a lot of the statistics in our Perfect Labor Storm segment, uh, you know, a lot of talk about stress and burnout these days, uh, mental health and well-being. It, is stress and burnout a symptom of midlife crisis? Does mid, you know, is it a consequence or is it the cause? Where does this fit in? Because there's a lot of people that are stressed out and burned out that, uh, again, people like to grasp on the titles. So yeah, it's yeah. like people, the listeners may just be saying, hey, I, now I know what the problem is. I got this midlife crisis and I got to sh- you know, just chuck everything that I'm doing, create a new life and I'll be better. Uh, stress and burnout are an equal opportunity employer. <laughs> you, you can have it at any age. And so I don't think it's specific to midlife. I think what is specific to midlife and around the idea of stress or burnout um, it has to do with the spinning plates phenomena. So um, it is often in midlife, let, let's say early midlife, 30s and 40s, where you are accumulating. You're accumulating friends, knowledge, um, dating, then getting maybe married, having kids, responsibilities, stuff. So there's this accumulation thing that's going on. It's interesting when the caterpillar in the last couple of weeks before the caterpillar spins its chrysalis, it is eating more than it was earlier. So there's an accumulation thing that's going on before you go into the chrysalis. Um, and so what's going on is you're just like, you are trying to optimize so many things that you have a lot of spinning plates. And and especially if so much of what you're doing doesn't feel authentic to who you are, you feel like you're reading from someone else's script, that makes it even worse. So not only do you have the stress of trying to too, do too many things at once, some of these things you're doing, you just don't want to be doing, uh, or you're starting to realize that. So that's actually, I think, those are the, those are the, um, the qualities that could lead to stress and burnout in midlife. Um, and so I, I'm a big believer in the idea that we need a great midlife edit. Uh, whatever age you're considering midlife, learning how to get discerning um, about what it is that you are ready to let go of is essential. Because if you continue to accumulate or in the caterpillar's case, eat as much as it is, um, at some point you've gorged yourself on too much and it's and it, and it can be stressful. So... Um, you know, MEA is a midlife wisdom school. So what's wisdom? This is what we help people with. Is how do you define wisdom, Chip? Well, I define wisdom as metabolized experience. So how you have taken your life lessons and learned from them that leads to distilled compassion. Because actually the first part of that metabolized experience, if that's all it was, that could make you savvy, not, not necessarily wise. Wise all the way back to the Greek days was considered a social good, you know, for the common good. So there's an element of, if you take your metabolized experience, your life lessons, 
and then you start applying them and helping other people learn from them and supporting others in compassionate ways, then that's what wisdom is. And so that's part of what we help people with at MEA <clears throat> is to learn how do you distill all of that life experience down to maybe five key things that are going to be, you know, your, your commitments to yourself and some of the gifts you have to offer other people in the form of advice or wisdom. And with that, with MEA chip, um, we don't want you to give away all your trade secrets, obviously, but can you share maybe one or two things of, you know, when, when someone enrolls, applies, and then they attend uh, the Modern Elder Academy, what are some things that they can expect that they're going to go through to help them work through these things? Yeah, well, definitely was understanding how to cultivate and harvest wisdom is one. Um, another is how do we reframe our relationship with aging? So Becca Levy at, Stan at uh, Yale has shown that when you shift your mindset around aging from a negative to a positive, you gain six, uh, seven and a half years of additional life, which is amazing because that's more life gained than if you actually stopped smoking at age 50 or if you started exercising at age 50. So um, there's a huge benefit to learning how to reframe our mindset on aging. <clears throat> Another thing we help people, and so we help people with that. We also help them to understand what gets better with age. Um, additionally, we help people with navigating midlife transitions. You know, adolescence is full of transitions. We know that. So is middleescence, <clears throat> midlife. And some of those transitions are like the adult corollary of adolescence, hormonal, emotional, physical, and identity transitions. But some of them are like being in the sandwich generation, you know, taking care of your parents while you're taking care of your kids. Uh, some of it is, you know, changing careers, changing where you live, becoming an empty nester. So understanding the what we call transitional intelligence, TQ, not EQ, not IQ, but TQ, transitional intelligence is all about understanding the three stages of a transition and what are the best tools to get through each of the three stages. So that's another thing we have in our toolbox. We have a lot more than that, but that those are a couple of, of things uh, that we help people with. Chip, you might have answered this, but we had a, a question from uh, one of our guests and friends and colleagues of the show, Dr. Salon Shira. She asked, can you, can you talk a little bit about the third act? Yeah. So the third, <clears throat> people sometimes call it the third act. I actually think we now have a fourth act. So in, a, in traditional plays, there was a first act, a second act, and a third act, sometimes an intermission in between the, the, the first and the second and the second and the third. Um, often the way we looked at life was the idea of each act of the play in your life was 8,000 days. So if you do 8,000 days, the first 8,000 days was, took you about age 21. Um, and that was the first act. The second act took you to about midlife crisis around 44 or so. Um, and then the third act took you to right after you've retired at 65 or 66. And to be honest with you, 25, even 40 years ago, you might die after your third act. Um, but what's happened is either we have a now a fourth act because another 8,000 days would take you to about 85, um, which is not that far off from average longevity for uh, women in the United States. Uh, it's definitely a little bit higher than for men. So you, we've either, we've created some longevity such that we actually have either four acts or the third act is much longer. Um, and so what that means is that the third act, I'll just call it the third act for now. The third act is a really important period of life where you can take all of that 
learned learned wisdom that you've got and apply it in new ways. I call it same seed, different soil. So I was a hotelier who took all of my knowledge about leadership and entrepreneurship in the hospitality and travel business. And I took that seed to new soil, a tech company, Airbnb. Um, and it was fertile ground. They needed my perspective um, and it helped me to see that I could be relevant. So my third act was realizing that the seed that I could take with me could actually go into a whole different industry. So, um, so that's part of what we help teach people is like, wow, don't, don't think that I, like with you, Ira, you know, you could have said, oh, well, I'm just a, I'm a dentist. That's all I can do. Maybe I can figure out another thing. I don't want to be a dentist anymore, but I have to be in the dental profession or in, or in medical, in healthcare or something like that. But you come to realize that you may be choosing that because you don't realize what other options you have, nor do you understand what kind of wisdom you've developed. And that's part of what we help people to do is to realize what kind of wisdom have they developed and how could they apply it in other, in other industries to, or to other kinds of uh, habitats. Yeah, that was something that I guess I just inherently recognized uh, and, and maybe it was my upbringing. But, you know, when I left, people go, well, what are you going to do? I mean, people looked at my now ex-wife and, and family uh, and said, you know, how can you let him do that? I mean, you have such a great lifestyle. You're going to leave all this behind. You invested so much uh, into that. You know, what are you going to do for a living? And yet the people who supported me and, 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 and somewhat innately was... I have transferable skills. I wasn't a, I wasn't successful because I just knew how to drill and drill, fill and bill. Uh, I was successful because I was, I, I started a business from scratch. I started it in 1980 and interest rates were crazier. I mean, interest rates, we think they're high now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they were, you know, my, my, my first interest loan was 10 plus uh, was prime plus four. It started at 14%. It ended up, I bought a house at 18.5% mortgage wow. because, because I got that $150,000 house for $70,000 because I couldn't get it off the market. And then I just, as the interest rates came down, I just refinanced. So I owned a, a, a nice home. But it took, I guess, some risk, but it took some critical thinking. Uh, I built my practice based on customer service and marketing and good business acumen all those skills were transferable. When I left, all I stopped doing, I have the same business I do now as I did 30 years ago. I just don't see patients. I don't pick up a, a drill. I don't pick up a scalpel. I don't go to the hospital. I do it out of my home office. Mm -hmm. But the process was all the same. And I think that's still, still people to this day, and it just blows my mind, will say, wow, that was so courageous being able to do that. So I guess one of the questions, and we're going to take a short break uh, in just a few minutes, but when you come back is, I guess one is recognizing that that there's, that, hey, I'm going through a midlife crisis, and I, I'm sure a lot of people around them are just going to say, everybody goes through that, just sort of stick it out. Because it's we, we still have the self-identity with with what what's your job title? You know, which goes along with one of the dumbest things we do with, with kids. What do you want to be when you grow up? And they get this job title and that becomes your focus. And, you know, I, I, I'm writing a chapter in a book and that's, you know, that's part of it. In fifth grade, somebody said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And for some 
reason. No, no family members, nothing. And there was nobody in my family. I said I was going to be a dentist. And then I was just too stubborn to not do that because every, anytime somebody says, oh, you're so goal oriented. You're such a good achiever. You get the pats on your back and you go, oh, it must be a good decision. So I'm going to be a dentist. And every step of the way from my first day of college to my first day of dental school, I always said, why am I doing this? <laughs> and I was like, you know, I was good at it. I was successful at it. I was top of the class, had a great, had the largest regional practice uh, and hated every minute. I mean, hated what I did. I loved building it, but I hated doing it. Yeah. Well, I look forward to talking about this after the break because there's, there's lots to unpack there. So we are talking with Chip Conley today. Uh, we're talking about becoming a modern elder and a wise elder. And this seems to be the theme this year, Jason. We're talking about the older we get, the wiser we get. And it's not just older people saying that. It happens to be the science saying that, that it is true. Uh, you are listening to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. We will be right back in two minutes. For most of us, change is freaking terrifying. And unfortunately, there's no app to adapt. That might change in the not-so-distant future, but for now, we're on our own. That means we can either accept our default future or reimagine our tomorrow. For those of you who choose default, good luck. Just remember, there's no pause button for change. You can't turn back the clock, and there's no get-out-of-jail-free card in this age of perpetual uncertainty. Like it or not, change will happen all around us, and that change is not becoming just more disruptive and frequent, but volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, or VUCA. Fortunately, you can make change work for you and turn it into your personal and competitive advantage. Reimagine your future to one in which you're living with purpose, you're happy, and you're growing, thriving, and flourishing. If you're ready to rewrite your next life chapter and regain control of your destiny, in this never normal world, your journey starts here. Contact the leader in adaptability and making change work for you, your team, and your organization. Ira S. Wolf, adaptability.expert. There's a certain kind of coach who believes what we believe, who leads people to greatness who gets people unstuck, who unlocks all of your passion, a coach who helps people discover what drives them to tap into their superpowers, that knowing your why is the first step to untap potential, to focus, to breakthroughs, a coach who's looking for a better way are you that coach? And welcome back, everybody, to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. We are honored to have Chip Conley, the modern elder, with us today, helping us unpack and understand everything about making sure that we are living our calling um, in life. So, Chip, uh, as we were getting ready to segue into the break, we're, we've focused a lot on people finding their personal purpose and mission in life. Let's change gears a little bit here on the second segment. Let's start thinking about uh, things through the, the business lens. We do have a lot of CEOs, COOs, strategic HR leaders who listen to the show, and they may be wondering, okay, help me understand how this, what this has to do with leading possibly intergenerational teams. How do we go about recruiting and retaining mm. 
50 and 60 year olds in our workforce. Can you give us some wisdom on the things that you've learned and in particular with, with the work you did at Airbnb too? Yeah, there's so much uh, interesting data here as well. Um, by the year 2025, the majority of Americans will have a younger boss. Who would have imagined that? We don't have any history of that. Historically, the hierarchy in our organization was the older you are, the more senior you were. And that's changing um, and rap pretty rapidly. So to have the majority uh, reporting to a younger boss is fascinating. Um, secondly, there's uh, just so much evidence that uh, the, the, the largest labor force increase that we've seen since the Great Recession came from baby boomers who've chosen to stay in the workforce longer. Of course, the pandemic changed some of that, um, but a lot of the baby boomers came back in. And, um, and there's a need because, you know, we've been running an unemployment rate under 4%, except for the blip of, um, of the pandemic for a long time now. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of reasons for this and it is, it behooves companies to get really smart about their recruiting such that they don't just think of recruiting at a college, um, that they think about recruiting to past employees who retired and might want to come back. We call those boomerangs, boomerang employees who come back, uh, often they're boomers. Um, but the, the idea that intergenerational collaboration, just beyond just labor force participation and needing to be able to recruit people. There is so much evidence now that that diversity and is generally pretty good on teams, but age diversity in particular. Why is age diversity particularly helpful? Well, the young brain is fast and focused. The older brain um, has something called crystallized intelligence. We get we get better at it till about age seventy, and then it starts to drop off a little bit. But crystallized intelligence means being able to connect the dots. It's thinking holistically and systemically. It's being able to have the pattern recognition and the intuition of what's going to happen next. We get better at that as we get older. So if you have a team full of young people with brilliant ideas and smart, you know, smarts around IT and technology, the ability to do things quickly, the desire to break things and try new things, and you mix them with some older workers who are, and again, this is based upon a, a cross respect, respect of uh, reliability and respectability amongst each other. You have older workers who are able to see the future a little bit more uh, and maybe look at potential collateral upside and downside of decisions that are being made, um, connect the dots a little bit better and offer more psychological safety, which is the number one ingredient uh, for successful teams at Google. Um, then you've got the best of both worlds. And I think that's what we had at Airbnb. I mean, um, I will say that, you know, to go from a, a little tiny little tech startup to become the world's most valuable hospitality company in the course of only about six years. Um, it was 10 years ago that I joined and four year, I spent four years full-time and then three and a half years as a strategic advisor part-time. But for all that to have happened that quickly meant that, that a bunch of things had to fall in, in line properly. And one of them was there was such intergenerational collaboration amongst four generations in that workplace. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really important. I think it is a strategic differentiator for a company if they do this well. Uh, and I, I have a daily blog called Wisdom Well. <clears throat> My Wisdom Well daily blog is a place I write a lot about, you know, how can we create more intergenerational collaboration in the workplace? 
I love that, Chip. And as a psychologist, you're talking my language when you're talking crystallized intelligence. Um, yes. I used to do a lot of assessments around uh, Cattell, Horn, Carroll cognitive abilities. And so looking at fluid intelligence and crystallized intelligence, I'm curious, just as a follow-up to what you just shared with us, um, what's the magic sauce of how you get the older generations and younger generations to work like an Airbnb? Well, I think what works for us, and I mean, I, I my book, Wisdom at Work, is all about this. So I, I'm only going to maybe give you one example because we don't have a lot of time. But um, creating mutual mentorship, what I call a mentor, where you're both a mentor and an intern at the same time. So my relationship with Brian Chesky was very interesting. Um, I offered him EQ, emotional intelligence, in the form of leadership, in the form of personal mindfulness, in the form of how do you manage a team in an effective way. Um, he offered me DQ, digital intelligence, in the form of understanding how to use my, my iPhone with all of its uses that I wasn't using, um, in the form of how to actually create a website that's sticky and has great UX and UI so people love it, in the form of understanding the digital intelligence of venture capitalists. I had been a longtime hotelier, but I didn't ever have to deal with venture capitalists. So I learned as much from Brian as he did from me, even though he was 21 years younger than me. Companies have the opportunity to create mutual mentorship relationships where one of the parties who might be older has one set of knowledge but wants to learn something else and the younger person has the vice versa. They know something that the, that the boomer wants and they want to learn something from the boomer. And I think that is the, the future of learning and development in companies is going to be more and more focused on this because all you have to do is have matchmaking technology in a company to be able to do this. And because we are so comfortable with Zoom now, you could have an employee in London matched with an employee in Los Angeles doing this with each other. You know, working with Brian and the DQ and the EQ, I, and I love that. I love that comparison. Mm -hmm. Is, is that with wisdom, um, with becoming older, we have a unique perspective um, about the future. But with things changing so fast, yeah, you know, and I, I, will, I will speak for a lot of my peers, they don't get it. I mean, they don't understand how quickly things are changing and accelerating. So I would all, almost say, and maybe it's because they don't have wisdom, maybe they're just older, is, is that their their judgment is clouded by their past experiences rather than open to the way the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years is going to be. A modern elder is someone who's as curious as they are wise. So you got to, you get, you can't just be, you know, your, your wisdom is not just war stories and it is not just the way things have always been. It is an adaptability and an openness to new experiences and that curiosity. So I also would say that some of the people you're talking about may not have the knowledge of where the digital economy is going. And therefore what they're lacking is not wisdom as much as they aren't lacking that knowledge. They may have some wisdom. They may have some sense of where things will go um, based upon the pattern recognition, which is what wisdom is. So, uh, but I think the number one thing for anybody who's uh, in middle life or later is learn how to be curious again, because it actually is the ultimate elixir for life. Yeah, we, we talk a lot about, uh, and I've worked with Jason and and his one of the companies he founded, and we have a growth mindset program. 
and it's a, it's a micro coaching program and it takes people through that. And, and it's just that you, you got to take risks and people even in their twenties don't take risks and they get this fixed mindset and, and they're stuck. And, and, you know, how, and, and I think that's the root of a lot of the issues, not of the issues, but of the challenges that, that are presented, that it's not just curiosity, but it's having the courage and the confidence to, to be able to try something. And if it doesn't work, so yep. be it. I've, you know, uh, I, I've certainly in those 28 years, um, and, and prior, I've made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> Some cost me money, cost me relationships, um, but you learn from them and, and you move forward. We had we had another question, and then we're, we're, we're sort of getting to the end here, um, from Rich Feller, and I'm just going to put part of it up there, is what's the connection to purpose and work when paid work and the continuation of that is uh, when paid work may not be available for all? I would say that um, there's a, first of all, my, on mindset, we teach mindset here too. So I, I love the fact you guys do. Um, uh, when it comes to purpose, uh, you know, I'm a, we have a purpose course uh, online as well as workshops on it down here in Baja. Um, purpose is interesting because I, I'm a big fan of the Ikigai, the Ikigai um, model from Japan, which basically says there are four key elements to feeling a very purposeful and flourishing life. One is doing work that you love, uh, doing work that you do well. So you, usually those are the same, but they're not always. Something you love, something you do well, something that you can get rewarded for, and then something that the world needs. Those are the four. And it's a Venn diagram, and right in the center is the bullseye. So to answer Rich's question, um, it's really the, what sometimes people say at the bottom there is doing work that you can get paid for. I like to actually shift that language is doing work that you can get rewarded for because re reward can show up in many forms. It could be financial, but it also might be in that sense of purposefulness or that sense of making a difference. Um, it, can, it can show up in your sense of being rewarded by learning something new. There's a lot of ways you can feel that reward. So I do believe that purpose is not exclusive to uh, the work that you do to get paid for. Um, it actually often is purpose is the thing that you would do even if you didn't get paid. And you're speaking our language because, uh, as you saw at the break, we have a program that we're associated with was Y Institute, and there's nine Ys, and and both Jason's and my Y, and I suspect yours is too, is contribute. It's one of it's one of nine Ys, and it's about our our reward, our purpose in life is to ensure that we're contributing to others. To contributing to the organization, and we do, we all do that in different ways. You know, mine's helping do a better, have a better way, and challenge the status quo. J uh, Jason, I believe yours makes sense. Yep, how I do that is by taking complex things and making them really simple for people to do, and ultimately building trusting relationships. And that becomes the, the driving force, and it's a, the ability to, to articulate that. But again, it, I, I love the it, it's not it's how we get paid isn't always in dollars and cents. We are uh, coming up toward the end, and we always have uh, an opportunity to learn a little bit more about yourself. So Jason is, well, before we get there, we, got, we have one question that we always ask. So sorry, I almost forgot that. Uh, the question is, what should we have asked you, Chip, that we didn't? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, I would just, I would probably say, you know, what have you learned from your failures along the way? If, if, um, wisdom is metabolized experience, sometimes the experiences or the lessons 
that are most profound and have the greatest imprint on you are the ones where you feel like it's a failure, what I would like to call a noble experiment. Um, so, yeah. And so I, you know, I could come up with a list of those if you wanted me to. Is, but is I would there say one that, that stands out? I think one that stands out for me is when I, when I was not thoughtful and savvy enough about an investor I brought into my boutique hotel company that was, that gave all the right answers, but was not really aligned with us on a mission level and um, was way too transactional. And, 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 and ultimately, you know, it, sometimes you feel like your investors in the business can be sort of separate from the employees and the customers, but man, if you have a, if you have a toxic relationship with an investor, it affects everything. So yeah, I learned my lesson there. I ended up writing about it in my book, Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. Um, and that really helped me from that point forward know I have metabolized experience around investors. Chip, we have so many similar paths. And I'm just, as I'm thinking there, we all think our situations are unique and how embarrassing is that? We made a stupid mistake. Um, but but just through your, your personal, I, although I didn't have a near-death experience, with that exception, so many of the other things that you mentioned are so similar. And, uh, and I'm just, I, I can't help but think that there's so many people that are listening to this or hopefully are, are going to be listening to this that have experienced many of the same things and uh, and there is a pathway and I appreciate you sharing that but now we're now we're going to get to uh, the lightning round and jason's going to take that yeah so chip just a few questions as we wrap up here to get you to uh, know you a little bit better on a personal level um so let's start with this first one how about a favorite band or a favorite song of yours uh, Bill Withers, Lovely Day. Nice. That's the first one, the first time we've had that one, isn't it, Ira? That That is a new one. And and I actually know who Bill Withers is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love it. Now, how about I'm this not gonna one? Sing, I won't, I'm not going to sing it for you. But <laughs> <laughs> we won't turn it into karaoke. All right. How about number two here? Um, what's at the top of your bucket list? Yeah. I, you know, it's, I've, I've struggled with my Buffett bucket list because it, it was sort of, conventional in the old days because it's like where where do you want to go what do you want to see what it, i think you know my bucket list is really attached to my purpose list which is um it's my bucket list is really to be able to create a series of midlife wisdom schools around the world that actually uh, allows mea to be you know and to to actually get the uh, notoriety of you know being appreciated by the United Nations, for example. We've just signed a contract with the United Nations to help them. It's the decade of healthy aging. So maybe I've already hit that bucket list, but it's not, we aren't far enough along. So I, my bucket list is very focused on, on my purpose. I love that. And it sounds like you, in addition to United Nations, which is huge, you've also got a couple campuses that you're rolling out in New Mexico too. So it sounds That's like right. you're well on your way to achieving that item on the purpose list. And how about this one? If you could choose one person in the history of the world to spend a day with, who would it be? Wow. Um, you know, we're, we're doing this during Martin Luther King week. So I, I'm going to say Martin Luther King. A lot of people don't know he was only 39 years old when he died. Um, and I, what I would want to understand from him is is what he learned from Gandhi. So if I could have Gandhi and Martin Luther King together, because actually King very much studied Gandhi uh, and the idea of nonviolent uh, uh, activism to make change, I, I would probably, I'd probably 
I do that, but I think it's uh, I'm influenced this week because of the fact it's it's his uh, his, his national holiday. So uh, that's what I'd say. Awesome. We love that. Chip, we can't thank you enough for being with us today. Um, to get in touch with Chip, you can go to chipconley.com to learn more about Chip's work. The, the book is Wisdom at Work, was his most recent one. And then also you can go to modernelderacademy.com to learn about the Modern Elder Academy, which is the world's first midlife wisdom school. And it sounds like potentially with the help of United Nations, we're going to have more of these around the world to help everyone. Um have a wonderful, purpose-filled second half of life. Uh, any other ways that you'd like to share with our audience to get in touch with you, Chip? No, you could. I mean, I, on LinkedIn, I post my daily blog uh, with, on Wisdom Well. So if you just go follow me on LinkedIn, you can see my daily ruminations about everything we've been, we've been talking about. Perfect. Chip, thanks very much. As we, we say this almost every week, we, as we, we have such great people, but the conversation today, we're... we're we just seem to get into it. It's it's like I've got my list of questions here. So hopefully we'll continue this conversation. Love to have you back sometime. We're looking at a few special events and uh, would love to have you team up with a, a few of our uh, of our experts as well. Please be well. We'll, we'll keep an eye on what's happening at uh, Modern Elder Academy. Um, we already get your blog and hope uh, many others will as well. Great. Thanks, guys. Hey, thank, thank you, you Chip. Chip. Appreciate it. Ira, holy smokes. I mean, I was taking copious notes. I know, um, I saw you there. <laughs> I have got a book over here of what Chip shared with uh, us in our audience today. Before I get to mine, what, what were a few of the big takeaways for you that stuck with you today? The the DQ and the EQ. I mean, and, and again, sometimes it's just explaining things. I, I love to be able to articulate to people, you know, what the gap is and what the value is. And I think when we, you know, I wrote, well, Geek Skeezers and Googleization, that was my book. And we talked, you know, and, and the original, the, the book when it came out in 2008, 2009 was about the four generations of workplace. Now there's five generations in the workplace, maybe six generations in the workplace. And it's how do you get collaboration? And, you know, we you talked about mentoring, but it wasn't that it, it was basically knowledge transfer at that point. It was, that was the reason for mentoring. And now the knowledge transfer goes both ways. And I think that's the DQ and the EQ, that each brings an intelligence, um, a, a skill set uh, uh, to the table. That's critically, cri critically important. You know, I guess the different stages, I mean, he had so many great names to describe it, you know, adolescence, middle and, and so forth. So I, I can't wait to re-listen to this, you know, frankly, because I was, I was listening and I didn't want to keep writing um, because I was listening because every time I wrote, I, I lost something uh, that he said. So I can't wait to, to, to go back and listen to this. I think the other thing was, I, I just like from a, a, a side of where could businesses go, you know, businesses uh, go to schools to recruit. And, and I, I didn't get to ask him, but it was like, you know, are there why don't more businesses go to 55 and older in retirement homes to recruit? You know, seems like fertile ground. And hopefully there's people listening that they may take advantage of it. Absolutely. And and get those folks enrolled into the, the modern elder academy to get the skills that they need to then upskill and transfer over to the workplace. I love it. For me, I'd never heard of wisdom um, a definition for it that resonated with me as strongly as what he shared today. His definition of wisdom was metabolized experience that leads to distilled compassion. Absolutely love that. That's going to stick with me for a long time. And then uh, the other thing too was he was talking about 
mindset a lot, but there was one particular aspect of mindset that seems really simple, that if, if we, all of us can learn this lesson, how much it's going to make the world a better place. And, this, and it was this, that we need to stop looking for reverence and look for relevance. I mean, it just seems like anytime you turn on the news, you know, the, the primary people you're hearing about are the ones that are beating their chest and trying to be the loudest voice in the room. And it's the people that are seeking relevance and how they can contribute and help and make the world a better place who are the ones that we should be putting on that pedestal instead, folks like Chip. And so it, it, just, uh, it just warms my heart when we have leaders like that who come on that have it in spades. And they're not just saying it with their words, but they're showing it with their actions of what it means to actually lead in this world and to help other people find their calling and their purpose. So those were a lot of the things that stuck with me today. And so uh, Googleization Nation, want to thank you for tuning in today. What a month it's been so far, right? Um, and we're not done yet. We've got more coming your way. But um, if you have not liked and subscribed to the podcast, please do so. Uh, you can also go to geekskeezersgoogleization.com and look for the Googleization Nation community. It's free to join Googleization Nation and stay in the know for advanced updates. So we'd love for you to join that as well. But until next time, I'm Jason Cochran signing off. And I'm Ivor Wolf. Special thanks for joining today. If you haven't joined yet, please join Googleization Nation. Uh, you can do that by going to Geek Skeezers and Googleization, as Jason said, uh, or you can go directly to GoogleizationNation.com. It's free. You'll get updates about our events, our past events, our future events. Uh, you'll get our newsletter. I would like to mention it was is that Chip had mentioned Ikigai. And Jason, you and I were just talking about that yesterday uh, in our planning session for an upcoming event that we're going to have on February 23rd. The information will be out shortly, um, but if you mark it on your calendars, February 23rd at noon, uh, we're going to be having a, a special event about finding your calling or unlocking your calling. So it fits in very well, but you don't have to just be middle age to do this. You can be, you could be uh, in your teens, you can be in, uh, in your twenties, you can be in your sixties or seventies. What you're calling never too late. And uh, we'll be talking a little bit about Ikigai, but more, more about finding your purpose, being able to identify that cause. How, how do you turn that collective wisdom into uh, a passion, uh, into your calling? Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be having a lot more. We'll be announcing that on Geek Skeezers and Googleization. And we also have a lot of guests that will be coming up to support that uh, down the road. But until next week, don't let the shift hit your plans.